0: Thank you for the kind welcome, Steve. It's a wonderful privilege to be with you this morning and to see such a thriving and vibrant church in Jacksonville with so many outreach ministries. Our first scripture reading is from Psalm 31, verses 9 through 16. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief. My soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my misery, and my bones waste away. I am the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've passed out of mine like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror all around as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Then our New Testament lesson is the lengthy, familiar, important story of the death of Lazarus in John's Gospel, chapter 11. I will read from select verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Martha was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill, so the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it it. accordingly. Though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now skipping down to verse 17, When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, Already there's a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always, I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Then the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. My wife, Helen, is a primary care physician. She sees her daily work with patients as a form of pastoral care, I think. She spends most of her waking hours on patient care. Whether it's attending to patients in the exam rooms, often for far longer than their appointment times, going carefully over charts in the evening to make sure neither she nor her staff have missed anything. I end up swinging by her office once a week for some reason or another, and when passing through the waiting room, I regularly see older patients who are struggling with the effects of aging, anxious teenage girls, everything in between. I see individuals from ethnic communities around the world who are trying to make it in the United States with difficult health problems and language and cultural barriers. One of Helen's biggest challenges is what she calls the psychosocial element of health. So many of her patients have stressful jobs and lives, and this, of course, has bearing on their physical well-being. High blood pressure, insomnia, quite often depression are recurrent problems. I come home sometimes from a long day at the seminary and talk about what someone said in a faculty meeting. Can you believe Professor X said this to me? As if the world hangs in the balance on trivial seminary politics. Then she tells me about her day and any feelings I have of self-importance melt away. One of the recurrent things she talks about is the combination of stress and illness, of people feeling like the world is closing in on them. Job stress is incredibly high right now for millions of Americans, and she sees it every day in her patients. Whatever your politics, Helen is convinced that the topsy-turvy nature of our national discourse reflects the uncertainty many people are feeling, and this spills over into health concerns. Helen tells me about patients whose job responsibilities double or triple, creating a perfect storm at work or at home. With stress at work and perhaps dealing with aging parents and a 20-something son or daughter saddled with student loans and who can't find work, these factors can create an array of complications, heart disease, hypertension, struggles with weight, and the list goes on and on. Acute feelings of helplessness are common. Helen came home a few weeks ago upset about an elderly patient who had presented with high blood pressure. She, of course, never divulges names, but her description was striking in its depiction. The female patient's English was very poor. She was visibly upset, claiming that her husband had just angrily shoved her against a wall. She thought she might be dealing with a woman in failing health who was also in a domestic violence situation. But she quickly discovered that this woman's husband had suddenly developed severe dementia and actually had no idea that he inflicted any harm on his beloved wife. Whenever she describes such a scenario, I'm struck by the emotional and spiritual helplessness that frequently coincides with physical pain. Psalm 31 speaks to this timeless aspect of the human condition. With a few turns of phrase, the psalmist gives terrifying portraits of illness, isolation, and their impact on a person's mental health. Difficult experiences can leave us in a lonely state, and such a predicament confronts the speaker in Psalm 31. This particular reading shows a crisis in all facets of a person's life, mental problems, and the failure of important faculties. I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief. My soul and body also. One of the tragic ironies of aging ...is that as we gain wisdom and experience over the decades... ...our vision and hearing often fade at the same time. Physical illness and the despair of loneliness... ...bring the speaker in this psalm to a pitiful state. Grief has caused the eyesight to fail. The passing of years have been characterized by sorrow and misery. In these verses, the extreme state of joylessness... ...has actually caused the physical illness. And then the focus shifts from the failure of the physical and the emotional self to the sting of social rejection. Fellow human beings are arrayed against the individual uttering this prayer, and there's nowhere to turn for assistance. I am the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. The last phrase emphasizes the comprehensive nature of this situation. Even the casual passerby will cross the street to avoid any contact with the person in question. Such a mob mentality understandably threatens the self-esteem of the individual making the plea. So much timeless literature wrestles with the sting of social rejection, grief, and the helplessness that can ensue. The book of Job is an excellent example. Many of you are familiar with the novelist Joyce Carol Oates, who wrote a memoir on the sudden death of her husband from pneumonia. She found herself inexplicably lost and alone. And despite the barrage of casserole dishes and people asking her if she was finally feeling normal again, she struggled to maintain physical and emotional sanity. One of the most frustrating things about grief and despair is that they're seen as a sign of weakness in our culture. My cousin, Billy, died a few years ago after having a bad motorcycle accident and then struggling for years with his recovery. We grew up together, and I was deeply haunted by his death. He died at 38 with a little boy the same age as my son. People noticed I was glum, and the most common refrain I heard was, I hope you get better so that the next time I see you, things are back to normal. The message is that we should not dwell too long in the shadows because this means we're missing out on life. But my cousin Billy's death is a part of life. Psalm 31 and the season of Lent remind us that suffering is an essential aspect of the human condition. Sometimes people both within and outside the faith ask why the Psalms, why Christian and Jewish tradition spend so much time on the dark places of human existence even when we're young, even when lament is the furthest thing from our minds, the answer is that we acknowledge grief, illness, and death as inevitable. And e- even if we have not reached that stage yet, there, these are corridors that all of us will eventually trod. As Christians, we invoke the language of suffering because it gives us a vocabulary for grief, the courage to acknowledge our mortality, and because it is central ...to the story of our Savior. I'm a sports radio junkie. I love listening to the jibber-jabber on the radio about upcoming games. I'll be tuning in to hear about the Gonzaga-Chapel Hill matchup on Monday as I drive around. I suspect I have some compatriots in the congregation today... ...with a healthy division of Gator, Seminole, and Bulldog fans... When the commercial comes on the sports radio channel I listen to, the one just above is the Joel Osteen channel. For those of you who don't know, Joel Osteen is the megachurch pastor who bought the Houston Rockets stadium in Texas and speaks to tens of thousands in his congregation every week and, and millions around the world. He traffics in pop psychology with no real honest acknowledgement of human suffering as an unavoidable aspect of life. This morning's Twitter feed from Reverend Osteen is, If you have the right attitude, your difficulties won't hold you down. They'll refine you. They'll make you shine. Would he say that with a straight face to Helen's patient struggling with her husband's dementia, her own high blood pressure, and living in an unfamiliar culture. Now, sometimes I actually like what he says. It, it makes my day a little brighter, but the problem with Reverend Osteen's discourse is that it ignores the reality of Psalm 31. He never reckons honestly with human suffering. Reverend Osteen skips Lint. There's a woman I know named Kate Bowler, who is an assistant professor at Duke Divinity School. She's been studying the prosperity gospel movement for years and trying to understand why it has found such resonance in American culture. For those of you who don't know, the prosperity gospel promises concrete material blessings for those who are faithful. Not long ago, Professor Bowler was diagnosed with stage four intestinal cancer. She is 35 years old. In the early period of her academic career and with a small child and husband. As one of the leading observers of the prosperity gospel, Bowler has pointed to the loaded term blessed in our culture. Speaking of our blessings too often means that extravagance is a function of the divine will. Reflecting the simplistic belief that a positive attitude will will cure all of our problems. God wants us to have that sports car if we'll just get our heads on straight and pray regularly. With her cancer diagnosis, Professor Bowler wonders whether she will ever be able to walk her son to school or take a picture of him in his date to the prom. And she explains eloquently the real problem in our cultural world today. The prosperity gospel has taken a religion based on the contemplation of a dying man and stripped it of its call to surrender. It denies much of our humanity, our fragile bodies, our finitude our need to stare down our deaths at least once in a while and be filled with dread and wonder. At some point, we must say to ourselves, I'm going to need to let go. I promise I won't stay in the valley forever in this sermon. The Bible contains a number of passages in which a simple but does not convey the force of the Hebrew or the Greek Psalm thirty-one fourteen is one such example. The first word in this verse is known as an, as an adversative conjunction, meaning that what follows will contrast greatly with what went before it in the passage. It should really be translated with, but... In this verse, the prayer turns from lament to affirmation of God's justice and mercy. But I trust in you, O Lord... The tone of the psalm shifts from lifeless despair to hopefulness... ...as the desperate individual places complete confidence in the Lord. In verse 16, the psalmist seeks wholeness in God's love. Let your face shine upon your servant and redemption through divine loyalty. Save me in your steadfast love. We frequently declare in the benediction at the end of the service... ...our expectant hope that God's face will shine upon us... ...no matter what we are experiencing complaint or lament is incomplete without the but. We trust in the promise of God's steadfast love and that that power and and that that steadfast love has power over all the destructive forces in the universe, even if we don't fully understand God's ways. This brings us to John 11 and the story of Lazarus. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, are frustrated and in a state of shock over the loss of their brother. Like all of us who have lost a loved one prematurely, they don't understand why their brother has suffered and died. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They feel helpless and are grieving. And yet the same type of but we saw in Psalm 31 also appears in John 11. Martha says to Jesus, but... Even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask him. Jesus replies with some of the most well-known and foundational words in all of scripture. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus, through his actions with Lazarus, proves that he is the son of the living God, the Messiah. But he also shows the miraculous power of resurrection. The darkness of that Friday on the cross does not get the final word. Lazarus comes out. In the midst of their grieving, Mary and Martha declare the exact same message as the speaker in Psalm 31. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. If nothing else, I hope this morning's sermon encourage you to pay closer attention to the buts in the Bible. The moment in the text when we realize that something has happened, the world has been changed and death has been overcome. Our entire Christian faith is based on honestly acknowledging our pain, our suffering, our mortality, but then at the same time proclaiming that something has happened. Through Jesus' life and ministry, we are redeemed. This morning and throughout Lent, we recognize our mortality, our brokenness, the frailty of our bodies, and the struggles that often mark our existence. We give voice to the reality of suffering and the tragic combination of physical illness and mental anguish that can occur in this world. But as Professor Bowler explains, we recognize our fragile bodies, our finitude, our need to stare down our deaths at least once in a while and be filled with dread and wonder. We Presbyterians don't skip Lent, but take it as an opportunity to reflect on the solitary, humiliating journey our Savior took to the cross and our own need to confront our sinfulness, our brokenness, and the more painful aspects of what it means to be human. And yet we also acknowledge that although we have not yet reached Easter morning, darkness does not get the final word. But I trust in you, God. Let your face shine upon your servant. As the psalmist believed, as Jesus showed When he told Lazarus to come out of the tomb, the miracle of Easter is that God transcends and defeats death. And we are blessed to share in that victory. In a few moments, we'll sing love divine, all love's excelling. I'll close with the last verse. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Thanks be to God. Amen.